All right, Higher Side Chatters, as we wade through a world of invasive technologies directing and recording far more of our actions than we'd like to admit, many of us start to wonder what we'll find at the end of this curvy and concerning road. Others examine our history of perpetual war and conquest, most without a reasonable motivation given to the people, and again, we wonder what's really driving these conflicts and military movements across the globe even today. And the savviest amongst us have seen the testimonies and texts leading all the way back to the earliest ages of man that describe interactions, rulership, enlightenment, and maybe even the engineering of humanity by some other intelligent beings, and know that there must be a deeper story we aren't being told when it comes to most of these threads too. Well, today's guest is very clear in his assertion that whether you're talking about the trajectory of our technology, our geopolitical agenda of perpetual war, or many other aspects of the human story, your picture won't be complete without factoring in the exopolitical element, and so that is what we're here to do. His name is David Griffin, and he's a UK researcher largely responsible for the UK branch of the Exopolitics sites and a card-carrying member of both the Exopolitics Institute and World Network. Having studied peace studies and conflict resolution, as well as learning, innovation, and interactive media in the college days, he realized that, while not being interested in ufology initially, you really need to incorporate that third rail to understand the game behind the game and the subtext to many world events. And David has done a great job nailing down and connecting exactly this type of subtext by conducting an amazing series of presentations that dive deep into the secret motivations and ET involvement in not only the Falklands War, but also the goings-on in Antarctica, and the strange string of deaths and, quote, suicides that took many Marconi scientists and engineers. Much of this revolves around a dangerous ET technology that many refer to as the black goo, and we're definitely going to get into it today. The professor of exopolitics, the saucer school scholar, and the black goo guy himself, David Griffin, welcome to the higher side. Uh, Greg, I thank you, and... I don't think Michael Saller or Alfred Weber, the two early proponents, together with me, who set up the very early national networks of exopolitics in 2003 to try and change ufology and bring it on from its Anorak days. Is Anorak a US term? Does that mean something? Does Anorak mean coat? I'm not familiar with the term. But Anorak just means, in this case, ufology was doing very well in the 90s over here. But it was more nuts and bolts, anoraki types. We mean the nerdy types that were, show me a piece of the saucer I don't believe. And yet that still gathered a big audience. Then it went quiet. And this was due to the death of UFO magazine, now taken over by your own US, Bill Burns. He's taken that magazine over. But that was originally a UK thing. So we had like five, 600 people coming to these events on UFOs. But it was round and round, nuts and bolts. And it bored me. And I was into the topic, but not that. So Exopolitics came up by Dr. Sala, and I went forward with the first national site outside the US on that. And you mentioned coming forward out of silence, and I don't want that to sound pretentious, but that's based mostly on you contacting me and on this topic that you've asked me to discuss or update between myself, um, Alec Newells, who's a contactee that was jailed for nine years for no reason, simply for having a contact account that you wouldn't give an account of to certain people that arrived from Britain to New Zealand, and Duncan Rhodes, who runs Nexus Magazine, who many people will be familiar with, two decades running Nexus Magazine. So three of us since 2011 have worked on this and bring it out to the wider public since Alex's first book, 
co-evolution. But mostly, I'll just say this, it was your scope of work. And what I admire is that UFOlogy can't just go on looking at, uh, give me, show me, as Steve Bassett says, I want the latrine. I don't know if that's a US word. Show me the latrine. Show me the toilet from the source and I'll believe you. It's the same as Yanrax. And exopolitics was meant to move that on into saying, right, look, for F's sake, we know that they're here and let's just deal with that. And also at the same time, which I've moved away from now, let's deal with what the government knows. And that went on for about 10, 12 years. So everyone's sort of fallen out and gone their own ways by now. And I've gone my own way. But in between that, the topic you've asked me to discuss is one that you're right. I've gone quiet on and for a reason. And one that I hope that perhaps we can deal with today by discussing it with you and tell you why all three of us who had very tight research, you know, this is the Southern Hemisphere, New Zealand, Australia, and Britain, and this whole black goo thing that you type into the internet now, a huge amount of results that will come back. Well, I guarantee you they weren't there in 2012, 2011. So this is what's happened since. And it's your site that covered things like Liz Frazier with her old ideas of the siren, because I did talks on visual language. So the point is, it's not a narrow look at things, and you are a host that represents something that isn't a narrow look at this area, or what we call, or Linda Bolton calls, high strangeness itself. You know, your channel and your show represents a wider scale of things. So you tell me where you want me to begin, because there has been a gap, and all three of us that I've mentioned the names have refused interviews since about 2014, when we did Nexus Conference in Australia, remotely, because Alec... A guy from New Zealand was stopped from getting a visa into Australia, if you can imagine such a thing, and I couldn't get over either. So there's something going on there when all you want to do is talk at an event of two, 300 people in Australia. Well, no way. The Australian government aren't letting you in to talk at a conference. But there's more going on than that. So you tell me what you know about the case and give me a starting point and we'll go from there. Sure, sure. Yeah, you definitely hit on a lot of things right there. It is a real treat to have you here, and I am so interested in the Falklands War, Marconi deaths, Black Goose saga, and it is the main thing we're going to talk about today, but you mentioned Liz Frazier, and I got to bring up the fact that when I asked you about coming on THC, you checked out a few episodes first, as one should, and you listened to one of the shows I did with Chris Knowles, and you said to me, shit, someone else is sussed out that Elizabeth Frazier is a siren, and they're not even from England. And you said what she's really doing is using visual language. You mentioned that too just a moment ago. And I saw your presentation on this, that these non-human intelligences speak in higher dimensional language. Sometimes they speak in color, so to speak. Terrence McKenna used to talk about this a lot, and it relates to cymatics and the power of psychedelics, and maybe even modes of contact you can have with these intelligences yourself. But because so many people in this audience are big fans of the Elizabeth Frazier siren saga work that Chris Knowles has done, I'm just really anxious before we dive into this Marconi thing and this Falklands thing, I'm just curious to hear from someone else who's able to fold her into their work. What can you tell us from your perspective about that little Elizabeth Frazier saga? Okay, Greg, can I be selfish for a moment just on traffic? And this is my cultural thermostat, as I call it, on many issues. And I do this if I do talks around UK or Europe and I ask certain questions that I'm interested in. It's slightly selfish. Are you saying Chris Knowles talks? I think he's done two for you covering the siren and Liz Frazier as an important central part of that. Are you saying that attracts quite a bit more attention than several other topics? Just interested briefly. 
for my show, that's been a real popular topic. And Chris Knowles has been a real popular guest. And I think it's just because of all the connections that unwind in that synchromistic way when you examine her and the things she chants over and over in these songs and how they tend to come to pass. And again, that might relate to a higher dimensional, higher vibrational type of language that actually maybe contains some type of foreseeing of events. But because you did mention that to me, and it is such an off-the-radar and unique slice of the pie, I'm just curious to get your thoughts. Well, top marks to it to you and to Mr. Knowles for actually covering that topic, because I kept quiet and I'd done talks on ETs, psychedelics and visual language, which you can find again online in conferences from 2010 onwards. And like you say, you mentioned the great late Terence McKenna, who died far too early, bless him, from brain cancer. But what he gave us is, if you're a scientist, I'm not going to go on too long about this, but he had a scientific view on this and a psychedelic view about ESR, electron spin resonance, which essentially says that certain things like the magic mushroom or certain tones like shamans from the Amazon talked about have the ability to sort of pass a threshold where they begin spinning a state of consciousness in other people. So I found out by reading his stuff that shamans could pass colors between each other and shapes, whether it was with drums, you know, again, everyone goes on about David Icke and everyone's going over to the Amazon going, yeah, I've been over to the Amazon, I've done my ayahuasca or whatever it is. And, you know, you've got these middle-class people going off and coming and shouting back about it in the US and the UK and other parts. But the point is that Terence was there in the mid-70s and he found that these shamans could pass by using the right vocal tones. They could actually afterwards discuss their trip, whether it was with ayahuasca or the plant, or the sacred plant of the Amazon, or whether it was with just drumming. I mean, they could get to that stage. They could pass on symbols and colors and they discussed concepts like, oh, if that circle of pink had a bit more blue in it, I would have understood the concepts you were sending me. And these are groups of shamans. So this idea of visual language already exists. And Liz Frazier, to me, is the central person who's come forward as someone in the pop charts. And I'm astonished that in, I didn't know how big they were in America, has come forward. And Mr. Knowles has gone and looked into that. Now, he's gone a little bit more new world order than me in the two interviews i listened to i just stayed a little bit more on all she represents is that we're now at a time where as you can see from the madness on the news when you turn on cnn in your country the bbc in our bollocks news country that when concepts are being portrayed like putin has hacking the election well obviously rubbish but i mean that's one example of many but essentially that politicians are insane you have a reality channel person as your president. We over here have just a mess of the House of Commons that don't know where to go on anything. So what I think comes through, and Liz Frazier's then represented us, they've become bigger, right to the point, as Mr. Knowles mentioned, of Heaven and Las Vegas, the album. And I challenge anyone who listens to this, get a copy of, buy Nick Steele, liberate a copy of Heaven and Las Vegas, and play it one night and just tell me after one or two listens if you're not hypnotized and it doesn't take you to your own. So this is not about someone trying to entrance you like the use of hip, uh, binaural beats. This is about Liz Frazier, the Cocteau Twins, that they have found. She has found some magic key to take you to a different place. Now, if you watch one of my talks or you look at the work that I did with Jim Sparks. Greg, have you heard of Jim Sparks, the contactee? I have, and we'll definitely get into him too, because he's an important piece of the puzzle. 
Well, I'm glad to go there if you want, but I interviewed him even before Linda Bolton Hound stuff, and essentially he was doing similar things. So he had symbols produced in his mind when he was on board a craft. They were a bit rough with him, the way he was treated. But, you know, I have a hint, there might be a bit of government interference there. That's one case I'll admit. I've known Jim Sparks for a fair while. There's a few strange things going on there. But let's keep it simple. So it's essential that ETs use telepathy, what we call telepathy. But essentially, it's a way of transmitting things. So people will say, I thought of a question to ask them. These are contactees or people who end up in their company on board a craft or whatever. The quotes are always like, they answered the question as I or before I thought about it. Now, you know, this tells us something about time and space. And basically that, yeah, we call it telepathy, ESP. But essentially what I'm saying is that this visual thing that behind, if you watch my talks, and I even show this in physics, that we talk in a bubble. We don't know this, but we, if you look into physics, when we talk, it sends out a bubble. And this bubble is passed on in a sort of visual cymatic. I mean, yeah, I'm glad, Greg, you watched that. You mentioned cymatics, and that's crucial. And people can go and look up cymatics for themselves if they want which essentially says that as sound is passed as a vibration, then it creates a visual image there on board this, it's like a drum, you'll know, you might be able to explain it better than me. But the fact is, it creates a visual image. That's a rudimentary form of um, electron spin resonance that mechanical did. So essentially, Mr. Knowles goes into different areas to me, but I think Liz is here to represent. We're at this weird simulation, or as Jean Baudrillard, who's a French philosopher, said in the 80s, he wrote a book on the simulacre, a top French philosopher, very weird guy, but I had it bang on. He basically said that we're getting to the point now where we live in a simulation and essentially we're sort of programming our own realities and then it bounces back at us. Well, this can only explain why myself and one of my best friends of 20, 30 years were shit scared. Greg, how old are you? Just out of interest. You can give me a rough age. 33. Okay. So I'm a bit older than you by three or four years, but you may well remember, you know, the year of Reagan, Thatcher and others when People in the 60s gone about duck and cover for nuclear bombs. Well, in the early 80s, which you will remember as well, even though you're a few years younger than me, I remember being shit scared because they told us that at the school I was in, if a bomb went off in Birmingham, central, I lived south of Birmingham at that time, that essentially we wouldn't die. We'd be all right. If we got under our desk, we wouldn't die, but our skin would fall off and this had happened. But, you know, when we got home, if our parents lived further north, they'd be dead. So all this sort of stuff was going on. And so when Suddenly it happened that Putin came back as the enemy during this whole time of the Trump. You know, again, your country rules what goes on in the world. This is why it's good for you to get UK people on for a different view now and then, because your country has a profound impact on things, whether it's discussing Liz Frazier, who's from the UK, or whether it's discussing the wider issues of the ET contact issue. And so, of course, Putin came back and suddenly became the enemy of the night. And I said to my friend from the 80s, he's, again, a couple of years older, he was like, why have we suddenly gone anti-Russia again? We thought we'd been through that. And in both our heads, we'd been told that the nuclear issue in the deep consciousness of our heads, we'd been shit scared as kids. and We'd been told that that's no longer an issue. Well, as you've seen now, they're now goading Putin. And it's not really about what's going on, but it's about the fact that, my God, these people in Parliament both your lot and our lot in the House of Commons in Britain have forgotten what the scariness of what nuclear war means. It's almost like they've something's been taken away. Philip K. Dick, another US author, called it an amnesia. It's about he calls it re-remembering. In other words, we're a race that's been around for a long time. And it's not about the fact that we're not going out there to learn. This is a mistake people make on that. Let's go learn facts on the internet by going through YouTube videos or crappy blogs. Philip K. Dick famous author, 
after his death, essentially said it's an amnesia, and this is all to do with that he talked about archons, you've heard of them around the archons and things, and that basically he said we're relearning. In other words, we've forgotten, and what this is is a blanking of memory. So what I think is we're relearning, and to bring it back to the topic that you mentioned, that Chris mentioned, very articulate, great guy with Liz Frazier, I believe that she's there as a meme, a mem, however it's pronounced in America, that with the way that she sings with her lyrics, again, Heaven Las Vegas, the album, that essentially she is saying this is a step in between uh, current textual language and the way we write or the way that I'm talking to you now and the next stage of visual language, which, again, if you watch one of Tom my talks with Terrence McKenna's and other people that have dipped into this area, I've just been a bit more blatant linking it to ETs, which few people will do. Right, man. I actually think it's so fascinating because I think you and Chris are circling around the same sort of thing because his contention is that this is channeled information, you know, that she has tapped into something. He refers to her as a prophet of doom because he's pointed out a lot of things that have been negative, but who knows who's causing what, but she's definitely tapped into something and channeling something. And it's so crazy because Chris and I, when we're talking, we always say that the level of detail that is in this case seems too precise for human hands. And I can almost see a parallel between this multi-layered level of detail surrounding Frazier and her prophecies and the complexity and multi-layered elements of this language that these beings seem to speak through. It seems like a perfect fit. I'm going to have to get Chris back soon for sure to talk about it, maybe have you guys together. But I also just wanted to ask you about these beings themselves why they're here and their motivations. I'm sure just like humans, they fall all along the spectrum of polarity, but many people call them spirits or demons, others extraterrestrials or aliens. But in one of your presentations, you make a comment that they accidentally got stuck here or that at least one group of them is multidimensional in nature and somehow got stuck or somehow penetrated our layer. And if that's true, it does a great deal to rectify those two camps. I guess, can you flesh that out a bit more for us before we get into the uh, bigger story of the day? Okay, I'll go for what I think you're on about with the beings that got stuck here. But I'll just say with regards to crystals and with Liz Frazier, it could be as simple. I've been a person that's been to seances. Now, this is why I've chosen you to come out and chat to because you're open-minded with these things. Well, I'm a person that's into the ex-politics, ET, contact issue, and yet I've also, my God, people who know me will now shrink in the UK, that I've also been to seances, but organized by groups that have lasted 40 or 50 years. Objects have been lifted, keyboards lifted in front of me and played a tune with no strings around, photos taken. I can prove all that. That's a different issue. So these two areas are intersecting. And so what I say when you mention Liz Frazier, is it ETs or spirits? All I say is what she's doing. And Chris says the siren. Well, he's dead right. She's opened herself up. The music that I think it's her husband plays. I don't know. They fell out. and I didn't. But her husband plays. When she hears it, she has got the ability, and few singers in the pop world have got the ability to do this. It's like meditation. How many of us can meditate the first time go to a yoga class? Very few. I mean, it's a technique to empty your mind. Well, Liz has the ability to do this, and she channels this knowledge that comes through in a frequency. And all we see in America when we hear about your churches or your fundamentalist churches, I'm trying to get things sort of going a bit here with the whole idea of the way other people see the U.S., which is important at the moment with Trump and things. But when we see Baptist churches, we think of your preachers madly going around touching people and then talking in tongues. Well, 
all Liz Fraser's doing is instead of going to a Baptist church, she's allowing that talking in tongues that's not perhaps forced or fake in a way that some maybe in Baptist churches in the US and over here, but she allows that siren, as Chris calls it, to come through and that babble. I dare anyone to call it babble. It's a beautiful sound. So I think she is channeling a higher self and muse. I think he's right in that. So I don't know whether it's ETs there, but with her, I'd leave it that simple. One thing I say with this is this situation with ETs, since doing the exopolitics thing in 2002 onwards, for 20 years I ran a site and people were saying, well, are they extraterrestrial? Are they extra dimensional? And I was going, essentially, we're monkeys in suits. That's what most of us are. You get on the train in the morning and go to work, whether in New York or in London, we're monkeys in suits. We cannot answer questions of the cosmos, but whether, in this case, so is Liz Frazier in touch with ETs or is it that she's simply tapping into some sort of higher form of herself, the latter, which I go for. But the point is the same with the exopolitics versus the whole ETH versus extra dimensional. I agree with Steve Bassett. We are not in a position to answer those sort of questions. And why should we? We don't need to. It's almost like a point scoring case. So Let's leave those questions until, for once, we invite these people down, these creatures, these intelligences, this federation that is most definitely in contact with us. And I have proof of that, which people will be laughing at. But come out with me for a night in England. I'll prove that as a side issue. So you're getting to a stage where instead of thinking about these creatures as one form or another, then I think if we steer on to now what we're going to talk about, the Alec Newell case, well, you can merge in his ETs, which were, strangely enough, the blue ETs that he called them. Now, he wrote a contact book called Coevolution, and essentially what happened is that his whole life rearranged so that he could be picked up for 10 days with his car in New Zealand, and he wrote a book on this afterwards. And his marriage dissolved, he left his family behind, and he happened to take the only route that would take him two or three hours, New Zealand's not a huge country, allowed not only him but his car to be picked up. And you're right, when he was picked up and then taken on board and given a new body to then walk around in and be told various things, which if I start going off onto this stuff, we're going to be three hours. But essentially you're right. What he said is that unlike the Roswell Let's just take the US. Your country annoys me. I'll say it out loud. You push Roswell on the rest of the world. So I'm not saying you. What I'm saying is Stanton Friedman, other ufologists that I've known about for years, they push Roswell on us and it's great. But I'm pretty sure that those beings were hidden in earth on caverns, in caverns for ages. Read Anthony Sanchez's book, UFO Highway. It's an incredible account. So some ETs aren't from outside here whatever extraterrestrial means. So the Roswell lot happened to fly around. Why would they have, instead of saucers, they had plane-shaped, the actual Roswell thing was a plane-shaped craft. It actually looked like a jet from the current era. And the truth, if you find where one of the artists that knows about this, is that it was shaped like that. So no, not saucers. So not all of them are like that. However, Alex Group was mixed with elders, robots, I don't think there's a Yeti there, but I have met someone that had a Yeti on board. And this was a huge craft that he went up in. But you're right. Essentially, they picked him up and they basically said, we did something wrong trying to move into light bodies. And now we're going to have to re-engage the timeline on Earth through various means, which gets us onto the black goo. I'm mentioning that term to make people sit up, Mm. which I formally called the sentient nano substance. The first interview I did, which I've sent you the links to, and I hope you can publish with the notes to this. 
And so Alec essentially went and got a 10 day not only tour around their planet and their amazing spaceship when you read his first two editions. But basically they said, yeah, we're sorry. In our experiment to enter light bodies, we basically merged with your solar system and your race. And so what's coming is something that you're not expecting. But also this is partially your fault. And of course it is. This is to do with us shooting down craft at Roswell, shooting down craft since, uh, sending fighters up in 1952 on purpose to shoot down craft. Read Frank Ficino's book based on the 1952 press cuttings where he found that the military had said, shoot them down. That was the title of his book. We sent fighters up to shoot down. So these craft come down because we've let nuclear bombs off. Everyone who listens to your show, I don't need to be patronized. They all know that this is the reason in 47 they came down and they basically were warning us. You know, there's Minot Air Base, the other air bases where they said, stop letting off nuclear bombs. So we have that whole, that's why they came down and for other reasons. They tried to help out. We refused that help. And my view is because Eisenhower, under pressure from the military industrial complex, which you'll know his quote from, as with your listeners, is that because we refused that help when they said, we can give you technology both to clean up your world, you don't need nuclear power, we can end poverty and help you on your way to the stars, which as a kid, I've always wanted. I don't want to be on this planet. I don't feel at home here. And I've met many others that don't want to be on this planet. It's a beautiful planet, but it's being screwed up. Because of that, Eisenhower under pressure turned it down. And let's just get away from linear progressive reasons instead of this idea that all oh, right we're being punished because eisenhower has turned down his offer of free energy and the end to poverty and the move towards the stars which we were due for in the 20s or before when tesla was around that essentially what happens the military forced him to turn it down hence his two speeches that you'll know about that he ended his terms with and that what happened was that as a result of this these blue-grey ETs, I mean, they're classic greys, but blue ETs, were on a strange rocky island called Southern Thule near Argentina that basically they were trying to de-engineer a nano substance. And lo and behold, how could nano come about before the 1950s, 60s, 70s? It couldn't because nano wasn't really in our heads, but lo and behold, in the 80s, it sort of was. When was the Falklands War? In the 1980s. So what I'll leave you and I'll let you come back to me with the quotes that yes, they came and said there's about to be a division. The two universes ours to our mistake, but also yours through your mistake. We as humans must also go, we're flawed, not just Eisenhower and his military, but you know, we vote these people in, we vote Trump in, we vote Hillary pedophile Clinton in. So we've got to also take personal responsibility for these situations. So they said to him, listen to this from World War One, but I believe it may have been before. They had an agreement with Argentina. This is where this base is down in Southern near Antarctica. They said, we're trying to, quote, de-engineer a nanosubstance that's soon to be activated by signals from space and undersea, and one in the Great Wall of China, which we haven't discussed before, which has been proven since. Essentially, a signal is going out to activate this. Now, Alec was told, the writer of Coet Evolution, that how clever, think of this in a sci-fi sort of way, that this black goo, something that I call the sentient nano substance before the interview that changed it to the black goo, but essentially it was left there by a previous go see the movie Prometheus that surprisingly came out what, a year after this whole discussion of black goo, that an alien race before them had left this on the planet that should they get kicked off the planet, i.e. they come and say, we want Earth, and another group that's down here already go, or a federation go, no, you have no right, we have humans growing here, or 
yetis growing here or dwarves, whatever it is. And they go, right, all right, we're off. But as they leave, they plant a high-tech biological nano weapon deep in the seabed in very cold conditions. And they leave. And as they leave, they go, right, goodbye. And they say goodbye. Yeah, we're not going to take planet Earth over. But they then press a button, send a signal, and it starts off a terraforming of this planet. And this is what it was told related to the Gulf of Mexico and several other things. Right, right. So I'll let you come back on that and where you want to steer me to after that. Sure, man. I mean, this is really the meat of it. And you told us a little bit about Alec and his story. It's pretty fascinating. And it overlaps quite a bit with this Falklands War saga. And I like to make sure the audience has the context they need. So for people who aren't familiar with the Falklands War, it was a short 72-day conflict between the UK and Argentina in 1982. It started when Argentina invaded and occupied the Falkland Islands, which are right off their coast, but had been claimed as British colonies since the 1940s. And it was a curious thing, like, why rock the boat like this? Why invade these islands just to start some shit? You know the UK isn't going to just let it go. So the whole conflict seems to be lacking a motivation, if you ask me. And that's because behind the curtain, this whole conflict was more about this alien base located on one of those islands. One that's actually called Thule Island, as you mentioned, funny enough. And... Of course, the reverse engineering of this black goo nano substance. And you can take it from there if you feel like that overview is pretty accurate for the Falklands War. Yeah, okay. I'll tell you what, I'll do it a bit in reverse. And what I'll say that people may doubt me on, this is missed out of talks that both I myself do on Alec Newell, who's done this. A guy that I've known, a guy that I treasure for his honesty the guy was a car salesman and engineer, loved doing rally cars in New Zealand. You know, typical Kiwi sort of guy, very mellow. I mean, that country is a whole different case. And I don't know, you and your listeners may know that people like James Cameron and others are currently flying over there. Alec Newell himself, I don't know if I should say this, but he sold a property to a Russian oligarch, a very well-to-do Russian, and sold it well above its asking price. He'll probably slap me for saying that, metaphorically. But New Zealand is the place to go. And I could go into how certain maps of the future that are done by there's two very famous people that you can find show that New Zealand is one of the few places that rises. The rest of these San Francisco goes, parts of England go up to where I'm living very strangely, the Peak District. But the point I want to make is for nine years, because Alec wouldn't tell his story, they knew something had happened because of his car, which, Greg, is going to take too long to go into. We'll give them some context the car okay i'll tell you the context and in a few words i'll tell you how weird it gets um you yanks know one of the first with all this technology uh, apart from probably china but engine management systems perhaps in the 80s okay so you get the first energy management systems in a jaguar very simple you think i don't know greg how much you know about cars but you'd imagine in 1982 i don't know much but you'd think fairly simple but they weren't expecting to put alec back on this planet they thought he'd naturally come with them because he'd done his job down here he said, no, I want to see what happens to the Earth. So they put him back down, but they weren't expecting it. They had to come back. This is interesting. They had to time their ship entering our atmosphere or the scout ship or what at a certain point. So it was all timing. You know, this is interesting because it adds authenticity to contact accounts. And take me on on any contact account, the ones I think are authentic, because people say, well, that's just someone's word. No, the very fact that people add in things like 
They had to change their whole agenda, come via another planet, drop off someone else somewhere, and then come in at a certain time to drop him back off in New Zealand in 10 days' time when they weren't expected to. A, aliens aren't perfect, so they don't know the future, but also they had to rearrange things and drop him off. But as part of this rearrangement, they dropped his Mercedes off. He was a car salesman. He'd driven his Mercedes after splitting up with his family the first time. He would not be missed for 10 days or two weeks. Get that into your head, right? So what's the chance for ETs to come and pick you up for the first time? Your family would miss you, wouldn't they? No, he's left his wife and children and was moving to the country. I don't know the background. It's too sensitive. It's not my place to ask him that. And anyway, the ETs pick him up on this one chance and put him back down. But what happens then? His car is electrostatically charged. Something picks up on satellite radar. He takes it into a garage. The garage reports it to Jaguar in Great Britain, hence me coming in with stuff. And the first engine management system of Jaguar, they send over two people from Jaguar to New Zealand and also two people. If you want to go look this up, RIIA, RIA, go and look that up. It's the Royal Institution for International Affairs. Very hidden, but go and look up. You'll see Reagan, Thatcher and the Queen. This is a high up ranking. Whether it still exists or not, I don't know. So two people visiting from RIA, the Royal Institute for International Affairs. I just want to prove to people I'm not sat here talking contact bullshit. No, it's not my thing. So go and check that up. There's images out there on that. Um, secondly, what's happened in the rush to put it back? They put his car back. They put him back. But the engine management system, one of the early ones, has reversed. It's become a mirror image. They've fucked up. The aliens have ended up putting the early circuit board back into his car, i.e. they've picked up with him and his car, which happens to, that happen to Benny Barney Hill, but it's happened in some cases. I mean, you know, you are picked up with your car, usually not. So they put him back down, but in the rush, or I think more due to a blip, because they weren't expecting to put him back down, so something went wrong, a mirror image. This mini circuit board, one of the first engine management systems, you know, before we all had just shift stick gears on your bike steering wheel, we have the other drive, non-automatic sort of thing. And again, he has one of the first Jaguars with this circuit board that allows the engine to sort of monitor itself and maintain fuel, all the basic early stuff. And Jaguar get this back and they go, no way. There's no way this can be produced. We don't produce it like this, but also it's too perfect in its mirror image it's not just been soldered back together by a human being. This is a mirror image. So they send two people over who also turn up with people from the organization, that I'm not going to mention again, that turn up then. And as a long series, they question Alec. And he refuses to say anything, mostly because he doesn't know a lot himself. It comes back gradually, as most T accounts do. It comes back gradually to him. But he knew something had gone on for several reasons that I won't go into. But what happens after they keep coming after him? Go, what happens? Why is your car got electrostatic? Did you get hit by a thunderstorm? Why is this circuit board a mirror on it? And what do they do? Within about six months, he ends up being done for selling. He was a second-hand car salesman, but he ends up being done for some law in New Zealand where ultimately they do a fraud, all a totally made-up case, and he doesn't night guy bless him i mean when you meet him you know what i mean when i say bless him because he's like a lamb i mean he's a good strong guy but you know he wouldn't hurt anyone so to get nine years for simply having being a second-hand car salesman who's done something wrong in their books smells a bit of bs to me and so what most people know he does nine years in jail but it's not because of his cars they know that he's had contact they keep hinting at it if you read the book so he ends up doing nine years in a jail in New Zealand. Now, what annoys me with this black goo thing is lots of people have said, 
since I talked about the black goo, yes, we know, as I mentioned to you, Greg, in our pre-chat, we know that the black goo has been mentioned in the blob. I sent you an X-Files thing, which is the most recent Prometheus. But even before that, one guy from America sent me comics, and he said, here's all the comics. I thought, oh, how nice of him. He sent me all these comics, after which I've heard of, you know, like Spider-Man 1968, where the black goo or black gobules were mentioned. And he'd done all this research, like four pages. So we know the black goo was out there already, but the difference was that Alec was introduced to it in a different way. point I'm saying is that not revealing about this, he went to jail and did nine years. Now, for all those people that came after and said, right, well, we also know about black goo. Again, a term I didn't use at the start. If you watch the videos that I first did in 2012, I called it sentient nanosubstance. That was our agreed term. Black goo came from grey goo from one of the Majestic 12 first members called John von Neumann. And as you may know, a highly educated computer person who actually found that grey goo, whatever that was a mix of, was the first early forms of artificial intelligence. And that term then went to black goo while I was sat there doing this interview. So yes, black goo is actually a term, but it came from grey goo while I was sat there at this three-day interview I did in London with a group called Amash or Bases, which you can find online. But the point was, Alec went to jail for that and not discussing anything to do with that. And he knew a lot more than he say. A lot more came back to me in prison. He wrote notes in prison. But essentially, the ETs who he met during that 10-day voyage said a lot more. It's too long to go into now. But basically said, we are de-engineering in this island called Southern Thule. If you look on your globe, you'll find Thule North. The Americans, <laughs> who managed to get everywhere, as did the British, or did the British in their imperial days. There's Thule in the Northern Hemisphere, right on top of the Northern Hemisphere pole cap. And then we have Southern Thule just up from Antarctic as part of the Falklands. So, of course, the Falklands War then started. But that's the background to that. But my take is, and I'll let you come back in here, Greg, is that the Falklands War actually started in 1976 because this appears to be when the Argentinians, and I have a friend that I've sent you a picture, who moved there in 76. They set up a base, which was a, quote, weather station. I've sent you pictures of this. And essentially, 1976, they set that up. And the British obviously got a bit annoyed and probably had heard by the Americans, which is also interesting, that there was some ETs de-engineering this magic substance, not just destructive. If you got hold of this nano substance and could program it, which brings us to Marconi in Britain, then you had the elixir of life or the elixir of technology itself. So, Greg, help me out a bit here and guide me what you want to go Yes, well, this is all great, and it's a lot of information. Of course, the point to bringing up Alex's story is that it shows us that there are multiple unrelated sources confirming this same type of black goo nanobot substance, which is so fascinating. Why would this come up in several stories? It kind of helps to validate these stories. And in terms of the Falklands War, I would really love it to be about an alien base, and these things are usually so secret, it's hard to get a smoking gun for that. But for people who are new to this or are skeptical, what is the best evidence that you can give us to make that case that the subtext for this Falklands War dust-up was actually about an alien base on Thule Island? Okay, well, for once, I'm not going to go with the average narrative on an interview here with ETs. I'm going to go back to the same thing I said to you. And again, you've not replied, but you don't have to. And it may have been different. I don't know. To do with 
the nuclear thing that as kids we were frightened to death with. Well, when the Falklands War was just about the same time, just after the whole nuclear threat, oh, you know, if nuclear bombs let off, we've been taught this at primary school, for God's sake. You know, kids, I believe in Timothy Leary's whole idea of imprinting that as you enter your early teens, that you get imprinted with these ideas and fear hits you. Well, this is why Mimma makes it. Why is Putin after, we thought the Cold War was over, but now it's back when Trump or Hillary came towards the last election. And we were like, this is bizarre. But with the Falklands, it's the same sort of thing that at the time, and again, go and have a look at the video where I sent Craig a picture of this, that our tabloids had a, and recently you'll have heard of the ability that Britain has these things called denotices to do with a certain racial issue or the idea of covering grooming of girls over here by a certain cultural community. And he went totally quiet. The press went dead. Well, the Falklands had three denotices. Now, we're the only country Britain has denotices. So there are lots of gaps in what's going on. And remind me, in fact, I'll make a note to tell you about a freedom of information thing that I found that backs this up. In fact, what you've just said, Greg, when you've asked me the proof is a really good point. No one's ever asked me that in about 20 interviews. No one's ever said, what's your proof? Well, okay, but I'm saying to you, I'll be honest and go, when I saw the, I open a talk with, and I've sent you an image of, the Sun newspaper is a classic tabloid, a British tabloid. And as the war was going on, they had a gotcha as a title. And I opened the talks I did with this up, gotcha. Because what we've done is we'd, Illegally in international waters, the British had snuck up and bombed an Argentine personnel carrier ship. They'd bombed this in international waters. Thatcher had given the okay for this. This is all related to the Exocet missile from France, which goes into a more complex issue that goes even deeper into the fact that Thatcher threatened to nuke Argentina, which I can't go into now. But essentially, it was the fries that hit me when I saw this newspaper headline and the flag waving i was like this is insane these islands are like 10 kilometers square with a few sheep and a few people on you know one mare the thule island which ended at the falklands war and no one will tell you that and you won't find it in the history thule island where this base essentially was underground and where the argentines had built an above ground base which you can find in pictures that i've sent greg or on the tours that i've done the killer is that both my head said, this is idiotic. Why would we send all these troops down there just because the Argentines, and they didn't want the Falklands taken over. They wanted shipping and whaling rights or fishing rights around the area. And quite rightly, in one sense, because A, Britain's imperial age is over, but also Argentina is a few hundred kilometers away from the Falkland Isle to Southern Thule, and Britain is thousands of miles away. So there was that reason in my head. But on top of that, then, of course, you end up for once, unlike many people who talk about the contact issue, I get in touch with an Argentine guy who was on there from 1970. He was a logistics soldier on this, quote, weather station. He goes, yeah, it was a weather station. It wasn't. This is me translating in Google Translate in Spanish. So it wasn't done very well. But, you know, unlike other people, I don't just go for, oh, the British angle. A British soldier said this to me. I've heard all this before. I've heard so many times a British soldier said, it wasn't to do with what you say, it was to do with the Spanish flu. And no, I've got an Argentinian person who was there from 1976 to 82. So although the war said to be only a year or two long, no, actually, from 76, the British were messing with this. And there's a base built on there. And you'll also see a photo and beware one fake video that someone's done of almost like a nuclear bomb blowing this base up. A red base, you'll find it on Southern Film. Look it up on my stuff on YouTube. It's a very rare video, though is the fact that there was a base built there. And the point was the Argentines wouldn't risk a war without this sort of thing. I'll say one more thing. The, the second reason that rings is timeline, right? So 
a guy wrote a book on what's called the Marconi deaths. So we had all these bizarre deaths. Let's just say lots of strange deaths happened back at a main UK defense supplier in England, right? Called Marconi, who I've looked into and got a little bit more than they probably thought I'd get, including internal newsletters. And what's essentially happened is what aligns perfectly with the end of the Falklands War. It's not when they conquered Port Stanley, as they claim. It's when suddenly they get back to the UK, Marconi expands and all these staff working in computers who say when they activate a new technology in quotes that they found, it starts altering weather satellites in all over the world. So they found a way to program this quote fluid and it starts altering weather satellites. It also has effects on those working near it. And we have 20, 30 people dying bizarre deaths. Greg, you could go into that yourself if you wish. Well, sure. The situation there, we've had a couple guests talk about in the past. Nick Redfern would be one. But Marconi is basically like the Bell Labs of the UK. And it's one of these defense contractors working in telecommunications. And in this small sliver of time, there were between 20 and 30, like you say, scientists and engineers that committed suicide or died in very strange ways, either jumping off buildings or tying ropes around their neck and then driving a car and cutting their heads off and a lot of really strange things. But uh, I was also going to ask you to point out maybe a couple of those quotes from Marconi scientists or people who worked there because you have some compelling things they've said that does kind of make the case that they were dealing with this black goo substance or something very, very strange, which we're suggesting was the substance. Okay, well, look, this topic, as I know, I've done 10 talks in the UK and Europe on this, and I've done different quotes each time. Now, I've dug around and got quotes from the Marconi workers, one led by, I think his name is Victor Powell. And when you hear the testimonies from their wives, you find out that these happy, non-suicidal, promising, working for those two companies, Marconi and Plessy, both with the U.S. working on satellite engineering under submarine high-tech technology. Um, hydraulics is the key word that I'm not going to say any more on because we're working on that at the moment. Hydraulics, this it seems that this nano stuff also had a positive impact on hydraulics in today's modern world as well as a negative one. But essentially what happens, let's go back to what I said about the nuclear thing with Eisenhower that you all know about and all your listeners know about. Now, if you go and mess with something like the atom bomb, as bless him, Jim Miles said, now, what a line. And there are certain people come out with lines. Wendell Stephen, I've got a quote from him, and Jim Miles, he said, a note went out from Earth to the universe going, the kids have started playing with the matches. And this was, of course, about nuclear bomb. And of course, good old Jim Miles comes out with these classic, he's so well versed in these, again, like yourself, covers wide topic of areas, you know, not this narrow focus on one thing. So the kids playing with the matches, he knew was this wider term with, we're going to attract attention. That's what he was saying. We're missing with stuff we don't know about. Well, the black goo phrase that I hate sentient nano substance which appears to be more hydraulic in nature when it's linked to oil but that's another topic essentially what happens was that when we started playing i mean greg you and your listeners who know and have any interest in the et issue will know that when people turn up and find sources that have landed you hear about this from the military or contactees that they have negative effects, that you'll get burned by radiation, all sorts of things happen. But this, I believe, was a coalescence of almost a lesson of the nuclear era that we stole 
the British Royal Marines. I know in previous interviews I've said SAS. I've now confirmed that it was the Royal Marines that went in, not the SAS, Special Air Service of Britain, very famous, or the Special Boat Service. I've said that in previous interviews. It wasn't. It appears to be the Royal Marines that's done it because I got contacted by one. And so we went in and we took something that wasn't ours because what were these friends of Alec Newell's, the contactee who wrote books, who's now on his third edition that's coming out this year, what happens is that they were trying to stop us. They knew that we, so in the 18th century, Greg, you know that we were horse and carts in the US and UK. How the hell could we have altered nanotech? So it could lie there unhindered on this island, deep underground. Apparently it's the cold that keeps it inactive. But once you bring it to temperature, you use certain things to it, send certain signals to it, it starts activating and gets out of control. Well, we're so arrogant as with the atom bomb, British take it away. My intuition is the Americans may have had it already, and maybe Argentinians, but this is a longer story. If you look into the shuttle diplomacy of Reagan and his minions, but I've gone so deep into this, I'll bore you to death. So we take it back, and what happens? We go back to Britain, a little old country, we take it back to what we think is our best defense industry in the early 80s, right at the end of the Falklands War. And as they start trying to program, they find a way to interface with this stuff. So when they're back in the UK, they start trying to program this stuff and get their greedy mitts on it, perhaps for good. You know, I believe there's good people as well, perhaps for good reasons, perhaps to develop a new AI missile to take out your enemy, whatever. You know, there's good and bad in everyone, every sector. And so they get this stuff back. But when you take something, just as von Neumann, who said, I've become destroyer of, do you know that quote, Greg, destroyer of worlds? Yeah, from the uh, Bhagavad Gita, it was the guy who first let off the atom bomb, which was Oppenheimer. It was Oppenheimer. Bingo, good man, you're right. Oppenheimer said we'd become destroyer of worlds. Well, I believe that in little old Britain, we became the destroyer of worlds again in a microcosm of that whole thing that what Oppenheimer was saying there again. Oppenheimer knew intuitively when he saw that mushroom cloud go up, he knew that. Well, when these people saw weather satellites started behaving strangely and people working on this sentient nanofluid, when they saw them start to, you mentioned it, let me do it in detail for your listeners just for a bit of gore factor. One guy ended up tying a rope round his neck. You know, there are ways to do a quick death and there are other ways. And there are ways for your wife stroke girlfriend to find you and there are ways that you don't want them to find you. And he tied a rope around his neck, and I can give you another 15 examples of these, because I've read three different books on this stuff that you won't find anywhere unless you're into second-hand bookshops. So he tied a rope around his neck, tied the other end to a tree or a lamppost, can't remember which, pressed the accelerator of his car, and pulled his head off. Now, that may be a quick death, but what makes you think, would you agree have thought of that as a way of suicide or killing yourself under pressure before? I don't think many people would have thought of that. So... This has done the same as you mentioned, Oppenheimer. It's done the same sort of thing. But, you know, the blues that Alec dealt with were saying, no, the British have come in. And there were several international struggles after this that I can't go into again too long to try and get hold of more of this stuff. The Russians were especially ahead. It seems to other Germans. I mean, if you want a new version of geopolitics, you look into this area because it turns geopolitics on its head. The Americans being very crafty, staying in between, but you have Israel, you know, you have these documents that come up showing bizarre, even if half of them are false, even if you tell you the half is being true. There's a war, the term, Greg, satellite government, or as I call it in big Bill Deagle's terms, above government agencies. So that we've got a satellite government or above government that essentially has no relation to what we see on TV with Trump. <laughs> right. 
so essentially they played with fire, like you said, with Oppenheimer, and it resulted in these deaths. Kerry Cassidy said to shut them up, they injected them with the black goo that they found in the Falcons Daily. I said, no, it wasn't that simple. They didn't inject you know, this stuff has a field. If you read Rupert Sheldrake, Morphogenic Field, this stuff has a field around it. It's so potent. You've messed with it. You brought it from deep underground. And now it's going to act on you. And I'm going to finish this interview by telling you something that's not been told from Alec Newell that's about to go in his third edition of his book, which will back up what I'm saying. So sorry, back to you, Chris. Mm-hmm. No, it's all great. And, you know, I had asked you about the evidence for the subtext being an alien base. And, you know, one of the things that I've heard you talk about before was Freedom of Information Act requests that, of course, with some kind of conflict like this, there's going to be a lot of documents moving around, treaties, a lot of that kind of stuff. And you can get the documents for all those islands, except for Thule Island, where the documents are sealed for 40 years. And that alone is suspicious. But you mentioned the Germans, and that's why I asked the question of how can we be sure that this is about an alien base? Because... We've talked to a lot of guests about the Nazis and where they went after the war and the advanced technology they were working on. This whole story revolves around a secret base off the coast of Argentina, which is coincidentally on Thule Island. So these are things that make me wonder, like, how do we know the big secret here isn't that a post-war Nazi outpost was discovered rather than an ET one? Well, Greg, you've hit on something that, again, I wasn't actually going to discuss, that actually has been discussed between Duncan Rhodes, Alec Newell, and myself for the last three years. But don't forget here, the the blues, I, the blue grey looking, so imagine grey looking, the blues that picked Alec up said, we have been working, and remember what I said, and there's a quote from a famous UFO writer, I think it's John Keel, who said, it's steam engine time when it's steam engine time. And what he meant by that, he was basically saying that what happens is you see ET technology. It's like, you know, in Texas, you might know the cases. Jim Mars, again, the great man, mentions that these, what they called blimps, flying ships, blimps had come over. They landed and, you know, these pipe-smoking bearded dwarves got out. Well, you know, this was all documented by several people. But this was just ahead of the Germans inventing the blimp. So when Kiel, who, whoever I've just mentioned, mentioned when it's steering engine time, what he's very wisely and eruditely saying is that a culture only encounters a technology or exceeds it as it is when it's time for that. In other words, we only saw the blimps that came over and people saw those that were alien. The aliens disguise things or our consciousness when we're looking at things sees things as that way. And it's the same with this sort of stuff, that essentially we jumped a bit here. You know, the ETs have been since World War One dealing with this stuff. So we went in ahead, and as a result, 20 top computer scientists ended up dead. Because what we did is we jumped this alien gap that we weren't meant to be involved with this stuff. Really. The same as with nuclear bombs. We didn't have the spiritual ability to deal with nuclear energy. So we end up, you know, with Hiroshima and we end up now that our atmospheres, you know, the airplanes going around and you have air hostesses with hosts with their hair falling out and all this sort of stuff. But interestingly, when you mentioned the Germans there, you mentioned two things. I've written it down. So let's go through two points that are killer points on this thing. Well, I'm going to be honest, sir, I can't answer you there because actually what you brought up, Greg, by the Germans there is, do you know what was found on the island when this base was blown up? And go and see the pictures I've got where the British Royal Marines or SAS, I don't know who did the top base. I know it did the bomb base, so I've got an idea. Then they put cutting charges on. You'll see the base destroyed on Thule Island. But 
what did they do when they went deeper down a layer? They found this foundry metal had stamps of Germany, and this is pre-World War One days. So by you've reminded me of that. So you tell me, Greg, what's going on there? The Germans have got a foundry stamp pre-World War One, i.e. just before, that suggests that they were down there before or along with these blue ETs either building a base there or helping them. I don't know. But the point is the metal has a stamp on and we have proof of this. Uh, we have zoomed in shots that I'm not going to go into, but the foundry metal was stamped with German foundry marks, Deutsche foundry marks. So we have that. But the biggest killer thing that to me is right, and again, I put this in the talks, I sent you a picture, is you mentioned freedom of information. Well, lo and behold, what happens when I do all the research into this, which cost me a lot of time and a lot of money that I didn't have, that when you go in and go into the British, which Tony Blair now regrets doing, he thinks the Iraq war was great to kill half a million people and kids. He says, I should have done the Freedom of Information Act in Britain because he's the one that did it. You know, that didn't kill anyone, but never mind Iraq, a side issue. But the Freedom of Information Act, I go down to Kew Gardens in Britain, which is where all this stuff's held. And I go around their library and I look through all this stuff, both online and also in the library itself. What do I find? That you can get any details of the Falklands War you want. You can get them sailing from Plymouth in Britain which is where the people left to go to the U.S., the Puritans, uh, what they call went to the, to the U.S. So you can find where they left the ship from. You can find the logistics in Port Stanley, which is the main Falkland Islands. But when it comes to Southern Thule, all we've got is, well, they sent at the end of the war. The war was over. The ceasefire had been declared. But shh, don't tell anyone. They went to Southern Thule and did this quiet activity. I went in and said, right, well, give me the ceasefire document. I've got the one for Port Stanley. I've got the one for the other islands. If you go and look at the map I've sent Greg, it's up there. But what couldn't I get hold of? I could order a copy of the ceasefire document, the logistics, how many ships were in, who signed what, food, right down to the toilet paper they used. I go, right, I'll tell you what, I want the ceasefire, because that's going to be interesting to read. I want the ceasefire tomorrow, given what I've been told. I, at this stage, I'm still not believing the Alec Neal story of this underground base, you know. So I go, right, I'll tell you what, given this is a British war, I want the ceasefire document that says this is the conditions at which you lay down your arms, because they surrounded that red base for a couple of days and told them to come out. Then they blew it up afterwards, which you'll see the two pictures of. But lo and behold, what's the one document you can't get? And that is the ceasefire document for Southern Thule, T-H-U-L-E. The Germans call it Thule. And, you know, again, you've got to think one in the north, just above Antarctica. Go and find it on the map or have a look at the images of St. Greg. So why would, out of every, and believe me, I spent hours, days checking this, so I could get the ceasefire documents for the other islands or wherever there was other bits of Argentine troops, I could get food that was brought in to supply the people on the main Port Stanley, the main Falkland Islands, and what the residents that were, quote, British, that were still there. But when I wanted the ceasefire agreement for Southern Thule, where this pound underground base was with this, quote, black goo, that's now been shelved, and don't forget, I was back in 2012 then, until 2019. So next year, apparently, and I'm looking forward to this, 2019, they'll either kill me, or I'll go down there, and I'll try and get it, and it won't be available, or it'll have been lost, or I'll get it. I don't know. But all the others were released in the last couple of years, or the last decade. But the one document, I'm telling you, I went through this in detail, the one document you cannot get until 2019. Remember, I was researching this in 2012. Everything else was available. I could read it all online or, or go in, in Kew Gardens uh, itself. But 
the one that I couldn't, they said, we're going to restrict this. The only one they restricted for an extra decade was the Thule, some Thule Island, the treaty agreement that was done with those Argentinians that were sat above that supposed ET base that was there. So you've got that together. And why were the Germans, as you mentioned, you remind me of that, Greg. The Germans had foundry stamps. For, I think it was like 1903 or something. I don't know. We found something. So the Germans were down there even before World War One. Now, why would the Germans be that interested? So you have two things, and you reminded me of both those things. But there's two things that tell you when you look at this five-kilometer-square volcanic, freezing cold island full of penguin shit and not a lot else, why on earth would you put a base on there and put 14 people on there and then get the British to send an armada? And I can give you how many ships about can bore to death with who they sent there. But you can't find the one document that they've given out for the rest of the Falkland Islands. So there are things that I count as absolutely, compared to most cases you see with people claiming on YouTube, where they have absolutely nothing but their own voice. And those documents and foundry metal with the Germans pre-World War One that tells me why on a rocky island, sorry, I think it's a kilometre wide, why all this interest? So that's the two points, Anson, and the two points you brought up were two of the main points that I'd say, along with Alex's encounter with these. So the point is, and this is crucial, then I'll pass back to you, that even if you, and this is crucial, I think, for people that just swallow contact tea things or swallow ET or UFO sightings or CGI bollocks on the internet, the point is, even if you take Alex's account out of it, his written account of what they said, and they said, well, we've been de-engineering this nanosubstance for you because now you're ready to deal with it and you'll weaponize it, so we're going to try and de-engineer it. But no, we chased them out of there. They went to Tibet. That's where they flew from. We hacked them on the way, but that's another story. So the point is that even if you take away the contactee, even if you're a contactee skeptic, the point is the two points you brought up, Greg, were right. The Germans were there with foundry metal buried pre-World War One. And on top of that, the Freedom of Information article is only on that island. The rest of them you can find to do with the Falklands War. Two years worth of Freedom of Information Act, but not that one. Only in 2019 can that be found. Back to you. <laughs> yes, those are curious details for sure. And if you look at this whole picture, it's very clear that these governments cared way too much about what was going on here. They put too much energy into a small area that shouldn't have been all that important. So that's a major clue that there's something secretive going on, especially not being able to get that document. And I guess with the black goo, the story is that like many times when the government seems to recover some exotic technology, the typical move is they try to fold it into some corporation. They tried to do that with Marconi. It didn't work out. And they ended up wiping out probably everybody who saw it. It seems to be the reason why these 20 or 30 people would be dead. And who knows how much progress they made. But, you know, as we're closing this up, you did tell us about the whole saga, the Falklands War, the Marconi deaths, the sentient nano substance and all the subtext to that big story. And of course, in our private conversations, we've talked about the ufology community a little bit. And you've had some not so great things to say about the direction it's gone or the way it maybe has quarantined certain information. Of course, on the mainstream stage, we have the Tom DeLonge dust-up. You mentioned Trump is the president. A lot of people in the alt community are talking about him being the disclosure president. I've heard that a thousand times before. I'm not convinced. But, you know, you also did say that you've been silent for so many years 
for a specific reason. And I guess I wanted to close with maybe getting that reason because when you initially came up with this presentation, it was pretty huge. A lot of people saw this thing. It was a big dust up in the alternative community. And like you said, since 2012, 2014, you've been pretty quiet. And that's a couple of years. I mean, that's a long time to stay quiet. And I guess I'm just curious what happened or what that reason might be and why the reemergence now? Well, two angles, Greg. One was the way that I saw the internet works. And again, as I said, I've worked at uh, universities on internets, on learning material internets in the 1990s. So I've watched the internet grow, but I didn't know it was going to become this thing where what was pronounced by one person that would echo around and become true simply from the fact it was mentioned. So the point I'm making is that you can now go online, make a podcast or a statement or get filmed by someone and simply waffle and everyone goes, oh, that's really good that at night you're a super soldier and you kill people and then you come back and you're a normal person. I mean, that's one example, but there are many. So I got tired of that a little bit, but this is going to get some trouble. If I say I put on a decade's worth of exopolitics conferences over here with another guy and with some other people and alternative knowledge things. I met a lot of people, you Richard Dolans, Steve Bassett, many people. And towards the latter stages, as I started thinking, the numbers weren't going up to the exopolitics events we were putting on. And I was just like, this is insane. This subject should be viral. It's weird that Tom DeLong, like you mentioned, or Secure Team 10, their videos are watched by that book. Thousands of people, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. But, you know, I know people are lazy and don't get off the sofa, but people weren't coming in increasing numbers to the conferences that were making us broke. It's downheartening. So I started going more towards the contacts era. Secret Space I did first. I did a lot of work with Gary McKinnon, thankless task for 10 years, went down to see people in the Houses of Parliament, and I supported Gary McKinnon and tried to get MPs on his side to start and getting deported to a supermax prison in your country. So I spent a bit of time doing that. That was a thankless task. As soon as he then gets a reprieve, the UFO people in Britain come out and are like, oh, you know, Gary interview, you know, to talk, have a chat. But while you might be in some danger because you associate and try and stop him going to jail, then no one will actually come forward. But more than that, some of the big names, I said, well, surely, look, if you're into exopolitics or you're into the whole UFOlogy thing, at a certain point, it comes down to contact. And let's just say 50% of the time, I had a way to show Richard Dolan I think they'd written three volumes of UFO history about that may be possible that me or another group that lives within 20 miles of me in this certain area of Britain could take you out for four or five hours at dusk and you would have interactions with what well, I can pretty much guarantee you isn't. I've had flares let off trying to distract me by certain agencies. As soon as I turned the ignition off in the car, flares got let off from the other side of the hill, but they forgot I had an infrared night vision. I could see the smoke. You know, if you go on my site, you'll see these things. But the point I'm making is that every time I invited these big names in the US, big names in the UK, big names from Europe, every time I said, well, surely the crux of this, and this is why I don't get this topic, this is why I just left and I sort of washed my hands of it, is because surely the crux of whatever area you're aiming at, surely the crux is that you want to know that these crafts, whether it's plasma intelligences, you know, these light crafts and other stuff, if you want some sort of proof, because you've been looking through all documents for the last 30 bloody years, then you want to know firsthand, unmediated. This is when well, the priesthood did this throughout our history. The priesthood has stopped us getting directly in touch with, quote, God. And what that meant was 
visitors. That's what that meant, or intelligences. Let's just call them that. I'm not saying aliens, visitors, intelligences. And I'm saying that out of all the people that I asked, you'd be amazed who turned me down when I said, well, look, you're over here for X amount of days. I'll put you up. I'll pay for a B&B. As long as the weather's right, come. And there's a certain place where it might not be all the time, but let's say 50-50 you'll see something and it'll probably respond to you. And what I was interested in, this wasn't all on my behalf. I was interested in this person who's written X amount of books or been around for this long. I was interested in how do then these lights, craft, plasma intelligences, how do they respond when you have another person walking out in fields with your valets or in a car? How does it respond? So I had an interest in taking that person thing. How does that change the phenomena? Well, I'll tell you what, 99% of those people that I asked said, no, thank you. We don't want to. And all these people I got on well with, it wasn't about me. And they didn't want to come out. And so I began to think, what's going on? So you can write all these books. You can say all this. You can look at all these feelings, but you don't want to then go and meet what is, quote, might be, I'm not saying it is, the real thing, at least a chance of meeting that real thing. And I just didn't get that. And it disheartened me because I just thought, what's going on? Do people like a life of abstraction? You know, if you're off to come face to face with something you've been writing and going on about for 20, 30 years, and then you go, no, you're all right, even though you're offering to pay hotel fees. So that was it. And why do issues to do with the goo and how that got changed? That was it. But now my hope is that Alec will, we're trying to put a book together with some of my takes in, some of Duncan's, Alex also a wider take on this. And we hope it finds this time an intelligent audience. But I'm hoping that talking to people like you will gradually build a good, I'm not saying it can be big, but I'd rather have a small, intelligent, right audience that gets Alex's book and that we launch a new form of Contact 2.0 or the idea of what visiting intelligence is or who we are as human beings. That's what it's about. It's not even about it. It's about who we are. You know that, Greg, as well as me. It's not about what's out there. It's about us. So that's what I came on with, basically to try and let's see what Alex's third book, which is out this year, hopefully will encompass some of this change. And let's see if we can encourage a few more people to not rely on the priesthood, but to go out there and go direct, remove the mediator and see this thing. However, that's done. The same with crop circles, you know, whatever it is, that's the idea. But uh, those are some of the reasons that I went off the radar for it. Right on. Yeah, well, direct experience is always the best. It's a shame to hear you felt disenfranchised, marginalized, and frustrated with the overall community, uh, but it does happen. I would say keep fighting your fight and doing things your way, and who really cares how the rest of the community responds? We all have the internet, and people can tune into your own website, and it doesn't really matter what other voices tend to think, but... Man, this has been a lot of fun. Really great talking to you. I'll definitely include the resources you mentioned. Is there anything else to tell the people regarding your website or how they can keep up with what you're doing before I cut you loose? So exopolitics.org.uk was a very high traffic site, actually. If you want to see my articles, go to exopoliticsjournal.org. I'm the joint editor. I was. It shut down with Mike Salo with Bert. You'll find me talking about the deep state before it was even mentioned on TV. So exopoliticsjournal.org, that's where you'll find, you can search my name. I've got about 10, 15 articles up there, but they're going back decades or a decade and a half. But my own site, exopoliticsjournal.org.uk is shut down now after 14 years, but you can find me at contact-times 
Net, and you'll find a little bit of my stuff there that I'm starting to build up again after shutting down the exopolitics site and getting disillusioned of the whole scene. So that's it. But Greg, I appreciate your time, your patience. You've been a great interviewer, and I appreciate the fact that you put a bit of work looking into the stuff that I've done. And thanks to the song for the siren and Mr. Knowles as well. And I hope we can talk about that at some other time. For sure, man. All in a day's work. So I appreciate it. I'm glad you're back on the scene and keep doing what you do and take care out there. Okay. Cheers, Greg. I'm going to send you a couple more pictures. So edit that out if you wish. Otherwise, best to your listeners, best to you, and we'll be in touch soon. Oh, Lordy and sweet Space Force people, David Griffin, a fast talker from across the pond. And if you followed his work, a lot of this might have seemed like review but call me a sucker for the black goo, sentient, nano-fluid stuff. I think this is just a really engrossing saga. A quick war over an alien outpost, secret technology discovered, attempts to fold it into some deep state corporate research, and then wipe out anyone who learned about it. Maybe this stuff is the very AI-controlled substance that unpacked its coded DNA and terraformed the planet. I have no idea. I haven't seen this stuff. But David's presentations going back a few years really impressed me, and I'm psyched he decided to come back on the scene via the Higher Side Chats. It was also nice to talk about Elizabeth Fraser with someone else too, right? A bit of a different take, but the major themes of channeling and premonition are still there. But if David has more info to come out with, I'm glad we got introduced so that maybe we can talk to some of the people David works with and explore a few more elements of this stuff. I would try to make sure he's got a better recording environment next time. This was okay, but I'd want to work with him on that before we did it again. I tried to press a bit on the issue also of how do we know this was an alien base? It's on Thule Island. How do we know it wasn't some hidden Nazi base? And then he told us that they did find a Nazi emblem there. So now I'm really confused. I don't know what to think. But maybe there is an alignment of strange factions there. We've heard about it before. So it's hard to say what it is, but there's surely a subtext to the Falklands War that has gone undisclosed and a place called Thule Island being the ground zero for it already has me excited from the jump. I think he's just put together an immense amount of research, too. I mean, he's fired so many photos and documents at me. Sometimes I don't know what I'm looking at, but it is obvious that the research has gone really deep and is quite respectable. And I'm going to try to include as many links as I can for you. He sent me a zip file that did not work, but I'm going to see what I can do. It's a trip. And I know David doesn't love the black goo term either. But it's a popular one. I mean, it's stuck, no pun intended. As always, if you like the first hour, join THC Plus and listen to that second hour of this and every show. Today, we got into some of the latest chapters in the Black Goose story, where the ETs are congregating now, how the Great Wall of China and the Gulf oil spill could possibly relate to this hidden narrative. And Gary McKinnon came up as well. And I was thinking about his story in the wake of the newly revealed Space Force, and I'm pretty sure Gary used that exact term 15 years ago when he tapped into the Pentagon computers and found that list of military space personnel out on an undisclosed space platform. And here's a fun fact for you guys. I recently, like three days ago, reached out to Gary McKinnon 
and I asked him if he'd be interested in coming on the Higher Side Chats, and he did respond, but unfortunately, he declined, saying that what he went through was not pleasant and he doesn't really want to talk about it anymore. And that's sad for us, but I definitely understand. I actually felt honored to even get a personal response because I do have so much respect for what he went through and what he was able to expose. I already had a lot of confidence in the truth of his story, but the fact that he declined the interview I think adds credibility. If he was running some kind of hoax or psyop, then he'd be paid to do shows like this and talk about it. Instead, he's a guy who faced the wrath of the U.S. government and does not want to reignite that fire. I get it. I respect it. And I don't blame him. I just wanted to give him a shout out anyway. I hope he's doing well. But there we have it. If you think I should do a show with David, maybe even Alec Newald or Duncan Rhodes from Nexus Magazine, let me know. Because David suggested that he could make that happen. And now that David officially knows no one gets away from the Carlwood in under two hours, I mean, who knows what we could get into? <laughs> a little reference, mainly for the plus people. But I'm glad we did this. A real unique set of stories for the archives. And I'm pretty happy. And next week, we're going to get into a bunch of current event stories with a great new guest. A lot of people wish THC was more, quote, on trend. But I kind of like to do my own thing, unless there's a huge unavoidable event, of course. But I don't want to get blown away with the media and the trendy stories of the day. I also like to let things happen and make sure that we don't jump the gun too early and cover something wrong. I'm not always interested in being first, you know? I just want it to be good. And things are just so chaotic out there now. It's like for a conspiracy show, trying to parse out the truth in the narratives that are being thrown around, looking at how at odds the presidential administration is with the media and the established power there. Sure, it could be absolutely a manufactured conflict, but with a lot of the latest issues, you have to choose between trusting the government or the media because their stories on multiple fronts are just completely at odds. And both the elite class, businessmen and politicians, and the Project Mockingbird-dominated media are both experts at bullshit and charging up our emotions. So we just gotta be careful what we get caught up in just because the media tells us it's happening. You can, of course, go too far with that too, and I don't really know what to say beyond that, except get ready for the next episode. You might like it. It is a perspective you aren't used to hearing me cover, but we're going to go there regardless. These episodes are about the guest's perspective, not necessarily mine, so no conspiracy left behind, right? People definitely loved the last show with Ross Ben. I know I did, and a lot of people told me that they listened to it two or three times, and that's great. That is one I was really pumped to release. I also think this is a great, complete 180 crazy story too. So I hope you learned a little something. Hope you had a good time. Big thanks to David Griffin and I'll see you soon. I've done my part. Your move extraterrestrial base operators, Marconi scientists, snuffer outers, and guardians of the black goo. Your fucking Yeah.
the sun.